Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Chris Murphy is a United States senator from Connecticut. Before his election to the Senate in 2012, he served in the House of Representatives. He's the author of the remarkable new book, The Violence Inside Us, which is now available to order. For black Americans, it's felt like the knee of racism has been choking the necks of black people for more than a century. We say to these leaders... How can you tell black people to be nonviolently and at the same time condone the sending of white killers into the black communities? Multiple shots fired, possibly people down. Sheriff's deputies rushed to Saugus High School, reporting to an all-too-familiar call. We grabbed our, our friends and we, we just ran. New York School, I think there's somebody shooting in here. Right here in Newtown, Connecticut. The site today of a mass shooting and this time gunfire aimed at elementary school. New York School. Callers indicating she thinks there's someone shooting in the building. There are days when I wish I hadn't been there. There are moments when I try to forget the things that I saw, the things that I heard that soul-crushing morning at the firehouse in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. I am here today to represent Cortland Arrington. I am here today to represent Hadia Pendleton. I, I am here today to represent Tiana Thompson, who at just 16 was shot dead in her home here in Washington, D.C. I'm Senator Chris Murphy. I am fighting to end the epidemic of gun violence in this nation. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you so much for joining us. You start out your book by talking about a fistfight that you got into in first grade. And I think one of the most striking things you write about is that you felt like you were just hardwired to fight. Can you tell me and my listeners that story and what you meant by that? Yeah, this is in the introduction. And by the way, Alyssa, thanks for having me on again. This is a topic that both you and I are obviously deeply committed to. And this book is really about my study of the issue of gun violence over the last seven years since I've changed in 2012 with the shooting in Connecticut. And I think what I wanted to communicate at the beginning of this book is a recognition that there is violence that sits inside all of us, that as a species, we are hardwired for violence. And while 99.9% of Americans have never taken a life, very few of us have never 
never had a moment in which we didn't at least contemplate putting our hands on someone else. And that's because our species is actually more violent, much more violent historically than almost any other. And so it's important for us to recognize that so that we can make changes in the way that we associate with ourselves, the rules that govern us to try to tamp down that instinct. And that's what this book is really about. It's about the long human history of violence and how we've been pretty effective in controlling it, but then America's unique history of violence and how we've been very ineffective in this country at controlling it. It's interesting because you say that we're hardwired for violence and it makes me think of fight, flight, or freeze, which is our natural response to any kind of danger. That response sort of sits at the bottom of our brainstem, which is like the most primitive part of our entire body. It has not evolved at all. And so that is there for survival mechanisms, right? It's there for survival mechanisms, but our body has actually sent a message that it doesn't like to use that mechanism. So this story is in the book as well. When you experience that fight or flight moment, right, when you're presented with such a danger that you either run or you fight back, your body releases a hormone called cortisol. And at the moment, that hormone is really helpful because it helps you make quick decisions and it gives you a little bit more courage and strength. But in the long run, cortisol breaks your brain. It breaks your brain. And so if you have these fight or flight moments every day or every week, then you literally can't learn. You can't relate to other human beings. And so why we call the epidemic of violence in this nation a public health epidemic is because kids who live in violent neighborhoods, who fear for their life every time they walk to the corner bodega or to their school in the morning, their brains are broken by this hormone that gets released over and over and over again. And so it's no coincidence that the underperforming schools are all in the highly violent neighborhoods. Kids, whether they're shot at or not, they simply are different. Their bodies respond differently because of this constant exposure to trauma. And then you add just food vulnerability and how hard it is to find fresh produce and all of those things that help to restore the brain, restore the body. And then it becomes a whole other issue. Malnourishment makes it very difficult for a child to learn and for a brain to grow. I want to ask you, how do you think violence in America is different than violence in the rest of the world? Well, the first part of this book is really a story of the trajectory of American violence. And what's interesting is that America is actually not a wildly violent place until about the middle of the 1800s. And three things happened there that separate us from the rest of the world. And we never returned back to Earth. Uh, we became a more violent nation, and we still are a more violent nation. And quickly, the three things are, and they're interesting. First, it's the expansion of the slave population in the South after the invention of the cotton gin. More slaves means more violence. And the country kind of becomes anesthetized to violence, numb to it, because it's what is necessary in order to just keep our economy together. Second, you've got all these waves of immigrants coming to the United States. And what history tells us is that the more different groups in one space at one time, the more risk there is for conflict and violence. But then lastly, it's the invention of the handgun and the decision of the United States to not regulate that weapon. It gets sold in every corner of the United States, and all of a sudden, common arguments on the street become deadly because you've got this little weapon that you can hide in your pocket. Guns are just part of our everyday language. Going off half-cocked, flash in the pan, bite the bullet. They're all rooted in firearms lore. But were we really born a gun culture? Historian Pamela Haig says... Not necessarily. Listen to how many sentences begin with something like, Americans have always, they have always loved guns, they have always had guns. 
These things are much more complicated than that. The meanings of guns have changed. Other nations decide to highly regulate those early handguns. And so all of a sudden, violence starts to go off the charts in the United States because of our unique role as a melting pot of different ethnicities, our history of racial subjugation, and our failure to address the explosion of firearms. And we are frankly still dealing with those three phenomenon today. And it presents an explanation, but also an opportunity to finally get it right. So when you say the fact that the more enslaved people, the more violence, I would just love for you to expand upon that a little bit so that my listeners don't think that you mean that the enslaved were violent people. No, it's the opposite. So what I mean by that is, and thank you for giving me the chance to clarify, what I mean is that in order to maintain the slave economy, it required a just mind-numbing amount of violence. An overseer was someone who is born free, who has all the advantages and the privileges of whiteness, and yet probably not very wealthy. And so many of these overseers were people who come from very poor, impoverished families. Because it is a system of enslavement, it requires whoever the overseer is to be perpetually living in a world of violence, always ready to punish with violence, because that's how slavery works. It's forced labor, constantly being violent all the time. Then after the Civil War, in order to maintain white dominance, particularly in the South, but throughout the entire country, we just instituted a different kind of violence, beatings and lynchings and vigilante killings. But the fact of the matter is America just had more violence and it elevated the rates of violence everywhere. What you see in the South during the period of slavery in this nation is that there's also elevated levels of white on white violence because that's just how the country ran. And so everybody just felt that it was a little bit more okay to fire a gun at somebody or to stab somebody in the gut in this country than in other countries. And we're left with that legacy, even though many of us make the argument that not a lot has changed. We moved from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration, just different kinds of violence that are used to subjugate people of color. The problem is it just normalized violence such that it put everybody in the country at greater risk. It's interesting because when you think about what other countries have had to overcome, and yet they seem to not have the violence problem, even though their history is sometimes even more brutal than ours. What did they do differently in the growth of those nations? Like I'm thinking Germany, for instance, that makes it a less violent country than what we have here in the United States, which is an epidemic. It's a great question. And a lot of it is explained, as I mentioned, by the unique role that America's slave economy plays, frankly, a reality that European countries did not have to deal with. But then also this explosion of firearms that happens in the United States. Remember, the handgun is really invented here. All of the big gun companies in that period of time, the middle and late 1800s, were in the United States. And it became romanticized here. It got associated with the pioneers and the folks that were settling the West 
past. And we just made a decision that we weren't going to check the explosion of guns. In European nations, those governments decided to effectively have a monopoly on the means of violence, right? They just made the decision that it was going to be the government that was going to hold the dangerous weapons. And often that came at the expense of the population when those guns got turned on them. But it meant that once you turned the corner into democracies that could survive, you didn't have a population awash with guns. In the United States, we made a different decision. And thus, when we get to the 1900s, we have 50% of American households with a gun. And that comes with a much greater risk for all of us. So you talk about how the Sandy Hook school shooting really brought this problem into your focus. What shifted for you when that happened? Well, it obviously was personal for me at a number of different levels. I was the congressman at the time. I'd just been elected to the Senate. I was also a new and young parent. The majority of those who died today were children. Beautiful little kids between the ages of five and 10 years old. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. Among the fallen were also teachers, men and women who devoted their lives to helping our children fulfill their dreams. So our hearts are broken today. For the parents and grandparents, sisters and brothers of these little children, and for the families of the adults who were lost. I was the same age as these parents who were grappling with the loss of their six and seven-year-olds in Newtown. And as I got to know them at a very personal level, I felt two emotions. One, just a sense of kinship that I needed to do something to honor those kids, but also a just mortal sense of embarrassment. Maybe a month or so after Sandy Hook, I get invited to a community meeting in the north end of Hartford. And I tell the story in the book. There I'm met by a whole bunch of grieving African-American parents who have been living in these killing fields of the north end for decades. And they just look at me and they say, where have you been? Right? What were you doing? You've been in office for 15 years and now you care about gun violence? Why did it take the murder of 20 white kids in Newtown when 20 kids had already been killed here in Hartford before Newtown even happened this year? And so for me, I think maybe I'm trying to make up for lost time because I should have been working on this issue far before Newtown, but it did awaken me to the reality of gun violence everywhere in this nation. And so that's why in this book, I take the time to talk about the mass shootings, but then to talk about urban violence and then to talk about suicides and domestic violence because we have have to understand that while the Newtowns and the El Pasos get all the attention, a life is a life. And whether it's lost on a corner in the streets of Baltimore, it doesn't hurt the mom any less than if it happens in a mass shooting. And how much do you think the NRA is to blame for the gun violence in America? Well, as I mentioned, we've had elevated levels of gun violence in America for a very long time, far before the NRA came along. And remember, the NRA in its initial incarnation actually was writing America's gun control laws. The early gun control laws of the 20s and 30s were pushed at the behest of the NRA, which back then was an organization of responsible gun owners. It changes in the 1970s when it gets taken over by a bunch of anti-government right-wingers. And again, that story is in this book as well. And so I don't know that you can say that the NRA is responsible for America gun violence epidemic. What you can say is that the NRA over the course of the last 40 years has effectively stopped us from enacting measures that would reduce gun violence. What's wrong with this picture? 
It's from a CNN town hall on gun violence held just days after a mass shooting at a high school in Parkland, Florida. On one side, you've got the parents, teachers, and students who survived the shooting. And on the other, you've got Dana Lash, a spokeswoman for the NRA who's famous for saying things like, They will perish in the political flames of their own fires. This is what the modern gun debate looks like in America. We're so used to hearing from the NRA that we don't really question it when we see them on TV anymore. But talking to the NRA has turned the gun control debate into a confusing, frustrating mess. We don't say that no one has a right to free speech. I mean, are we talking about prevention or not? Wait a second. Wait a second. And that's exactly what gun companies were hoping for. We've learned a lot about how to reduce gun violence. And we've had moments when we've been very effective, like in the 1990s. The NRA has been the political obstacle to progress over the last 40 years. That is changing as well. It's so interesting to me when you think about at what point issues become political, right? And I feel like gun violence is one of those issues where you're like, how did this become about the Second Amendment when children are dying in classrooms? Like, how did we get to this point? It's the same thing I feel with the pandemic. Like, how did we get to the point where wearing a mask to save other people's lives is a political statement? Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think about this all the time because you and I often get accused of politicizing tragedy, right? I, in fact, had a Washington Post headline written about me years ago that made my stuff cringe with panic that said something like the senator who's okay with politicizing tragedies. And I don't even get what that means, because the only way that you solve the gun violence epidemic is by passing laws that put less illegal weapons on our streets, that lift up communities who are economically desperate so they have other mechanisms to survive other than violence. And that legislative change comes through the political process. And so I'm just sort of looking for the most direct pathway to reduce the violence. They don't say that a detective is politicizing a murder because he goes and tries to solve it in the 24 hours after it happens. Just like I'm not politicizing a mass shooting because I say shortly thereafter that if you don't pass universal background checks or ban assault weapons, these murders are going to continue to happen. I frankly have no problem with being political because it is the political process that's ultimately going to fix all of this. That word has just kind of become weirdly pejorative. I'm more interested in the ideas that parties have taken up certain issues as being one side versus the other. When something like gun violence, keeping our kids safe at school, stopping a pandemic, civil rights, all of these things that are such partisan issues feel like it should just be for the betterment of humanity. And I don't know how we come back from this place. But let me ask you this in just like a philosophical, psychological sense. Do you feel that guns fuel violence or does our impulse towards violence fuel gun sales in America? 
I wish there was a straight answer to that, but it's both. From the beginning of human history, we have this biological instinct inside us to fear those that are outside of our tribe. And I wish that didn't sit inside us, but it does. And so that's why somebody like Donald Trump can have 45% approval ratings, even as the country is melting down around us, because he plays to this sort of biological instinct to fear others and to see people who are different from us as threats, even though they aren't. And that does fuel the gun sales in this country. But it is also true that the reason why America has a violence rate and a murder rate that's 20 times that of most of our neighbors is because of easy access to guns. The reason why suicides are happening in this country at elevated rates is because access to guns is far too easy. So it is all connected to each other. And leaders who want to play upon that biological instinct to fear those people that are different, they unfortunately over and over and over again in human history find success. And in this country, that easy access to weapons makes that kind of demagoguery even more dangerous. Yeah. And you mentioned the connection. And to me, it just feels like there is a real distinct link between so many of our worst traits and violence. And what I mean by that is like the patriarchy and sexism, racism, greed. What do you think is the underlying force that connects all of these things? Listen, I think it's a really important question, but it's why I spent some time at the beginning talking about the human history of violence. Human beings learned pretty quickly that if nothing else works, physical dominance and superiority is a easy resort in order to maintain a hierarchy. And there are all sorts of different hierarchies in this country. Some of them can be maintained without violence, but others of them need violence. And we have done that to each other as a species for a very, very long time. And again, our willingness to allow guns to flood into this country just make that tactic even easier. I spend a bunch of time talking about domestic violence. And I talk about the fact that there's a whole bunch of different kinds of domestic violence. There's the stuff we read about, which is when a gun actually gets fired. But the real, most pervasive kind of domestic violence involving guns doesn't involve that gun ever being fired. It just involves that gun being around. So the latest fight concerns uh, the Violence Against Women Act, which contains a provision to ensure that people convicted, convicted, of stalking or abusing their dating partners rather than only spouses or family members cannot own guns. Now, I I really want to emphasize again the word convicted in this legislation. So this is not about people who are accused of stalking or abusing their partners. This is about people who have been convicted of doing so. And so the new version of uh, the Violence Against Women Act would take uh, guns away from these individuals who do pose a threat because of their conviction. So now, of course, the NRA is opposed. Yes. I tell the story of a boyfriend who would just casually bring the gun out during arguments with his girlfriend. He never fired it at her. She never actually felt like he was ever going to, but it changed the dynamic of their relationship. And coercive violence in relationships where the gun is just ever present is a really big part of reality out there. And that's a story that is important to tell. Well, I think you're right. You mentioned the word hierarchy before, and it made me think about how so much of this violence stems from people thinking or being conditioned to believe that they have ownership 
over other people, right? Violence against women and rape stems back to the time when men had ownership over their wives. Same thing with the enslaved. And I think that you can connect patriarchy and sexism and racism and greed to that idea of ownership and what you're entitled to. So I just wanted to bring that up because as you were talking, I was thinking, well, maybe it has to do with the fact that people have felt entitled because of some ancient ownership, not even contract, just spoken, known identity. And that's exactly right. I think it is about your identity being tied into the hierarchy that you inherit. You are taught your entire life in many places and in many families in this country that white people are supposed to occupy a certain place in society and people of color are supposed to occupy someplace different that males are supposed to be here and females are supposed to be here. And when you fear that that reality is being upset, then you sometimes panic. And again, with this easy access to weapons, that panic often turns to disaster very, very quickly. I wonder if we're also hardwired to fear the other because we are an evolution from something. Like if you were in the wild and you saw something that was other than what you're used to, that might be a threat. So I'm wondering if we're also battling that we are, and it's in part because human beings weren't built with giant claws, right? We weren't built with big horns to protect us. We were born with brains. We evolved with other means by which to protect ourselves from predators. And so what we did early on was to group ourselves. And we grouped ourselves based upon some common understanding of who was like us. And everybody who wasn't like us was a threat. And that got built into human biology over time. But it was the necessity of tribes and groupings in order to survive because we didn't have that physical mechanism of protection that allowed us to be solitary that caused us to ultimately have to develop this sort of biological trigger towards others that we now live with today. So right now, we are in the middle of a moment in America where it feels like any day things could get really, really ugly and that maybe that day will come maybe right around or after the election. How worried are you about widespread violence this fall? I'm certainly worried about it. As you know, much of that will be dependent on what this president says to his followers following the election. I mean, he's definitely inciting violence right now. He's inciting violence today. I think my rhetoric is a very, uh, it brings people together. But does it? The president and his words appearing in scores of police reports and courtrooms. After these two brothers beat a sleeping homeless man in Boston, one of them telling police, Donald Trump was right. All these illegals need to be deported. The victim was in the country legally. He's made the decision that his reelection is dependent on violence, right? He has come up with this argument in his head that given his inability to control COVID, his inability to get the economy back up and running, he's going to essentially burn down the building and he's going to hope that in the chaos he can escape without anybody knowing, you know, kind of like a panicked bank robber who's surrounded by authorities. I don't think that's going to work, but it means that it's going to be a really frightening next 60 days because he's going to intentionally try to create more situations like Kenosha or Portland in order to claim that he and only he can be the savior. 
after the election, we will see. We want to work to make this victory for Joe Biden as big as possible so there's no credible way the president can cry foul. And many of us in the United States Senate are talking behind the scenes to some of the president's most vocal supporters uh, in that body to try to make sure that they will be ready when he is beaten to stand up for the rule of law and the peaceful transition of power. Now, they have disappointed me over and over and over again. And I don't want to be like Charlie Brown, who keeps on kicking the football as it gets pulled out from under me. But it doesn't mean that I shouldn't be involved in those conversations, because what they say will have a lot to do with whether people actually do listen to him if he makes some very reckless calls and statements after the election. Can I tell you my biggest fear? Okay, I'm ready. You ready? I'm ready. I actually posted this on Instagram a few days ago and Breitbart picked it up as a conspiracy theory, but I don't think that this is too far-fetched. So my fear is because he has made his followers feel like the pandemic is over and the Democrats are encouraging mail-in ballots, my fear is, is that It looks like he wins in a landslide on Election Day because his base is going to all go to the polls, regardless if they get sick or not, with no fear in large numbers. And it's going to seem like he's winning and he will probably declare that he has won. And then we're going to have to say, whoa, 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 we didn't count the mail-in votes yet. And however long that takes from Election Day to counting the mail-in ballots, he is going to give permission for all the negative traits that we have in us to manifest publicly and violently. And so that is my fear, is that it's not about election day. It's about the 10 days in between election night, because I don't think we're going to hear a real solid winner on election night because we're encouraging people to mail in their ballots. So whatever that 10 days to two weeks are, What's going to happen in that time? How will he fight to discredit the results? So, I mean, that's kind of what's keeping me up at night. All right. Well, that's not. (laughs) All right. Well, it could have been worse. That does not sound like conspiracy theory to me. Well, they're trying to discredit me for feeling that way by calling it a conspiracy theory. Well, so we need to be worried about what happens in that interim period. And we need to make very clear to the American public that they shouldn't expect to know the winner on Election Day. Although I will say that from the very beginning, the president's attempt to discredit mail-in voting has been very strange because historically it's Republican voters that that vote by mail, more so the Democrats. Democrats tend to be the ones that turn out on election day. And so it's not automatic that it's just going to be Democrats who vote by mail. It may be that this year, but that hasn't been the practice in the past. The danger is that there are going to be some governors and secretaries of state out there, elections officers who don't play it straight, who delay the counting in order to create room for the president to create contest and controversy. That being said, in some of the states that are probably going to be dispositive, like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Nevada, you have Democratic governors who are going to play it straight, right, who are just going to count the votes as fast and as safely as possible. And so it's not a foregone conclusion that it's going to be 10 days. Maybe in some states they're trying to help the president sort of drag this out. It could be longer. But there might be enough states that just do this right and count the ballots really quickly that that period of concern that you and I both worry about may not be as long as we think. So there's so much going on right now. I've never, as an activist, been so drained in my entire life. I just feel like we're constantly trying to put out fires, but also on top of that, that we're just trying to stop 
him from rolling back rights, right, instead of progressing towards something. And it's a lot. And I wonder what you think about how much blame for what's happening in America right now lies at Trump's feet. No, it is exhausting. I sort of have this feeling that my job these days is just to hold things together, right? To just be able to survive until 2021. Listen, I think obviously this president is a threat to democracy. He's threat to the survival of many of my constituents, given the way in which he's botched the COVID response. I have been saying lately something that folks feel is overly harsh, but I believe it to be true that at this point, there's no other conclusion I can come to other than that he is deliberately trying to kill people because he knows what to do to save lives and he refuses to do it. But Trump comes to power based upon an economic reality in this country that predated him and wasn't his doing. We have allowed this country's middle class to become hollowed out. We have allowed for a very small number of haves to consolidate wealth at the expense of folks who now live paycheck to paycheck and don't have enough money to put food on the table. And all of that creates a panic that can allow for strange things to happen in a nation politically. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to rebuild the middle class. Let me explain what I mean by middle class. You know, I have a lot of economists work for me. They'll tell you middle class is 51,800 or 52,000. Middle class is a value set. Middle class is being able to send your child to a park you know they're going to come safely. Being able to send them to the local public school that you know if they do well, they'll be able to go beyond school. They'll be able to get a degree. They'll be able to get... No, really. And knowing if they get in... You can find a way to pay for it. So we've got to understand that getting rid of Donald Trump doesn't solve our existential economic problem as a country. We've got to sort of rebuild wealth. We've got to rebuild what used to be called the blue class aristocracy in this country. People who are working for an hourly wage, but had enough money to put their kids to college and save for retirement. And if we don't do that, then getting rid of him is just not good enough. Well, and we're definitely in a watershed moment in America. It feels big. We have seen mass protests and demonstrations following another spate of police killings and shootings. Can you just talk about the difference between institutional violence and violent responses to that institutional violence? Right. And this is really important because as Michelle Alexander and so many others have pointed out in great pieces of both film and literature, institutional violence is still ever present in this nation. Imprisonment is violence, right? Putting somebody in an eight by eight steel cage and threatening them with violence if they try to move anywhere is just violence in a different form. And so we have just moved seamlessly from slavery to Jim Crow and lynchings to imprisonment. Institutional violence now seeps out into the streets where the stuff we're seeing on videos is just the stuff we're seeing on videos. This kind of violence perpetuated by police officers against people of color, unfortunately, it's happening every single day. And what it does is just like in a different way, but similar to the way in which slavery anesthetize the country to violence. It does the same thing today. And so it legitimizes violence and imprisonment and the criminal justice system as a mechanism to maintain hierarchies. And so we all just sort of become okay with it all instead of stepping back and asking big questions. And what I love about this moment right now is that it may allow us to ask those big questions. What does defund the police mean? To many of the people who I talk to, it means an admission that you have to sort of break down 
down and build back up the systems of law enforcement that we have and decide for yourself whether every single complaint needs an armed police officer to respond to it, right? Does every single school in this country with black and brown students need a police officer with a gun and the power of arrest patrolling the streets in order to protect against a mass shooter? No, absolutely not. And so we have this opportunity now to think about these institutional systems of violence and not just do marginal changes, do something really meaningful and impactful. you're the right person to ask this question to. And I think about this often when there is an act of violence, it feels like it has a long tail, right? There's this explosive moment, but so much continues to follow that act. Can you talk about the ripple effect of violence, especially in your experience with Sandy Hook? Let me sort of start where my book begins. My book begins not with Sandy Hook, because this really isn't a book about Sandy Hook. My book begins with the murder of a young man in Hartford named Shane Oliver. Shane Oliver was killed a mile from where I grew up two months before Sandy Hook. He was 20 years old. He was the 20th victim of gun violence in Hartford that year, killed by another 20-year-old. And he got killed in a fight over a girl. He got in an argument over, over some things that some people were saying about his girlfriend. He threw a punch. The kid he threw the punch at went to the car, pulled out an illegal weapon, shot Shane Oliver so many times that he died hours later. And so there's tales moving both ways from that, right? So Shane's entire life was about violence, the threat of violence to him, violence that he did to others. He had a disability, and so he learned how to fight at a really young age in order to protect himself. He set up a water bottle selling business when he was 10 as an excuse to tell the drug dealers that he didn't want to go work for them that summer. His entire life was about sort of moderating the violence around him. But I first came into contact with his family at the arraignment of the young man who shot him, his mother, she just broke. She broke and she got into a fight inside the courtroom. She was, I think, lunging at the assailant and ended up punching a marshal and she was arrested. And I had to sort of insert myself to try to help her out. You know, she got offers from friends of Shane's to take justice into their own hands in order to be retributive for his murder. And so the violent incident that happens on that day in Hartford both has a tale that precedes it and a tale that comes after it. And I think we have to recognize that every single murder in this country has attached to it 20 people on average who experience some life-altering diagnosable trauma. And sometimes that trauma leads to another murder. Sometimes that trauma leads to a loss of a job. But the ripple effects are just endless. The ripple effects from mass shootings are obviously endless. Newtown, Connecticut will never, ever be the same. But the ripple effects from just that one murder on the 20th day of October in 2012 are kind of hard to track. They're so big as well. And what about the economic ripple effects? The economic ripple effects are substantial too. Gun violence isn't only devastating, it's expensive. The data shows gun violence costs the U.S. economy about $229 billion a year. That figure is a combination of lost income, employer cost, police response, and health care treatment. 
these neighborhoods that become violent neighborhoods are neighborhoods that businesses stay away from, that banks redline. What we have done as a nation is decide that we're going to compartmentalize poverty and compartmentalize violence in a handful of places. And it limits the opportunities of all of these kids. Shane couldn't even conceive of a future that involved going to college, right, and becoming a professional. He just didn't sort of have those role models or those experiences to point to. And that is in part because by just shoving violence into a handful of places, we also greatly limit the opportunities that all these kids and all these families have. And for the most part, this country is okay with it because they're black people and they're people of color and they're people different than us. And I never really ever have to go into the North end of Hartford and experience it for myself or worry about it for myself. So I'll just wall myself off to it and forget about it. And Alyssa, that was me for a long time. I mean, I wasn't doing it with that level of consciousness, but I grew up right next to Shane and I didn't know what was going on in the North End of Hartford. And even when I knew about it as a young member of Congress, I wasn't working every day on it. And now I am. And the book's purpose is to try to get more people to care at that level. Well, in your book, you talk about the violence that we ignore, part of which focuses on suicide. I lost one of my dearest friends and my makeup artist for 20 years to suicide about seven years ago. And I have this fight all the time when the gun lobby tries to discount gun suicides when talking about gun violence. And I think it's something so important to counter. What other violence do you think that we ignore? Well, I think this is a really important part of the violence that we ignore, and guns are a really important part of this story. 60% of gun deaths are suicides, and more than half of suicides in the U.S. involve guns. The report says the states with high rates of gun ownership, like Alaska, Arkansas, Idaho, Montana, West Virginia, and Wyoming, also have the highest rates of gun suicide. The most sort of stunning statistic is that guns are successful in 95% of the occasions in which they are used in a suicide attempt. Other methods of suicide are successful at rates that look like 3% or 5%. When you try to commit suicide by drug overdose, you're successful 3% of the time. When you shoot a gun at yourself, you're successful 90% of the time. And so because suicidal thoughts are so fleeting, they're only with you often for 20 or 30 minutes before they disappear, that easy access to the gun is the difference between life and death. I talk a lot as well in this book about domestic violence, that coercive violence that we discussed before, just how a relationship is changed by a gun being present and the too many times in which it's actually used on a domestic partner. I talk a little bit about accidental shootings in this book as well. Increasingly, we are seeing guns go off by mistake just because folks aren't locking guns up in their houses. And so there are all of these different types of violence in our country that don't get the attention that the mass shootings have that actually make up the lion's share of violent incidents. So how do we move past something that seems so inherent in our identity? It is part of our identity, and we have to first admit that. And again, that's the case I'm trying to make. Let's admit that this is part of America's makeup. And that means, frankly, that we have a greater responsibility to deal with it. But to the extent that I offer some tough words for my side of the political ledger, I do it in two ways. First, it's a challenge to not think that changing gun laws alone is going to fix this. Violence is worst when it comes at the hands of a gun. But if you don't change the economic order of this country, you are not going to do everything we can in order to reduce violence. 
frankly, we are not an outlier internationally on suicide rates as much as we are on homicide rates. And so there are other things that are explaining violence than just the gun. The other thing that I say in this book that will surprise some people and that I've already gotten some grief for is that I actually believe through the study I did in reading this book that there is probably a constitutional and common law right to private gun ownership, but that right can be heavily regulated. I think our founding fathers probably believed that people should be able to own weapons, but they also believed that government should be able to heavily regulate that right, register those weapons, decide who can own them and who can own them, decide what weapons can be owned and what can't. And I think would be much more likely to make progress as a movement if we just conceded that there is that right and that we're not arguing about taking it away. We're just arguing about putting some common sense restrictions around it. People are shocked to know that we are a two-gun household. They're like, I don't know, how can you, you know, and when I tell the Second Amendmenters who always bring up the Second Amendment, when I say, you know, I have two guns in the house, I'm not anti-gun. I'm just anti-certain guns getting into the wrong hands. And It just seems logical to me. And my husband feels like with all the death threats, he feels like he needs to protect the house. And I totally, totally get it. And I think you're absolutely right. But I don't know that we ever really started that narrative. I almost feel like it was started by the gun lobby to say they want to take away your guns because they know that that would have less traction than saying we want to be able to regulate who gets what gun. And I think you're right that we certainly didn't start any of this, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight back. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't recognize that there is a misimpression out there about what we are seeking to do. And I tell the story in this book of sort of being stared down on stage by a guy at an event in Connecticut years ago. And I could tell he wanted to just light into me as soon as I got down off that stage. And he says, you're the guy that's trying to take away my guns. And I said, let me tell you what I want to do. And you tell me what you think. And I say, the one thing I really want to do is require that everybody goes through a background check. And he was like, oh, well, I'm for that. I'm for that. I mean, that's what I want. And as soon as you sort of get into the conversation about the actual policies, you can find tons of common ground. And I think that by admitting that we don't actually think it's constitutional to take away your weapons, that we just make it a lot harder for people like the NRA or the Gunners of America to foist this mythology on folks that follow them. I could not agree more with you. I totally agree. And I find that with most issues that if you actually have a conversation with someone and point out, you know, especially people that have such hard, hard ends, but point out why you feel that way. But the problem is, is we don't talk to each other anymore. And the other problem is, is that nuance is dead. We're trying to come up with slogans instead of having conversations. And it's unfortunate because I don't know how we progress with that We're all responsible for that. I mean, I do a lot of work on Twitter, but every six months I think to myself, man, maybe I should step back because, you know, when you could only communicate your thoughts these days in these short bites of information, that contributes to nuance disappearing and we've all got to be better. Well, it's why I started the podcast, so I would have more than than a few (laughs) characters to, to describe what I'm feeling. My final question is just what gives you hope? What gives me hope is both a story of the long-term and the short-term, and I'll go back to the book if I can. I tell the story in the book of the dramatic long-term decline in violence in this world. We think of this world today as being a wildly violent place, and it is still far too violent, people being killed in wars and on the streets of American cities. But there is 
so much less violence today than there was in this world 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. And the overall trajectory of humankind is that violence goes like this because we come up with ways to control those instincts that we talked about. And so that gives me hope. But in the short term, people like Lucy McBath give me hope. Like Lucy McBath, who lost her son in a horrific act of gun violence. People told her she was crazy to run for Congress in a Republican district in Georgia. She not only ran for Congress, but she didn't hide who she was. She went out there and said, I care about my son. I care about changing the nation's gun laws. Here I am. And she won. And we got a majority in the House that would pass the kind of laws that will reduce violence in this country. And so the fact there's so many heroes like that that are willing to stand up and speak to this moment on top of this long-term trajectory that just tells me if we keep at it, we will do better. All of that gives me hope. And I don't know, I have to have hope. I mean, I chose a profession in which there's 20,000 reasons every day to just feel like you're banging your head up against the wall. But I choose to be a United States Senator and grateful for people like you because I have that access to the apparatus of hope. Well, I'm always right by your side, marching right next to you. So please call on me if I could be of service. And thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Violence in American life today is exactly like Poe's purloined letter. It's right in front of us, but we can't see it. We're surrounded by violence in our popular culture, in the news media, everywhere we look. We may be fascinated by it, we may be scared of it, sometimes both, but we don't understand it. We need to look at violence from a different point of view, and then it will come into focus. I know too many families who have empty seats at the table. I've held crying mothers from Parkland, seen the lasting pain gun suicide in the family has on dear friends, and I watched as the gun industry blamed everyone but itself. It's why I founded No RA, because this is something we can tackle. Despite the lies you hear from the other side, nobody's trying to take away your guns. Nobody is trying to end the Second Amendment, but the price of doing nothing is so high and so terrible that we cannot do nothing. Our history of violence is so tied up to our history of guns, and our history of guns is tied to our history of racism. It's intersectional. It's all part of the same fight, and we have to address each part filling in puzzle piece after puzzle piece until a better future comes together. Because what we have now is chaos, and what we need is peace. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.